let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your rich and abundant mercy to us that you have shown us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for your words, and we pray that you would enlighten our hearts and minds by it this morning. Help me to be faithful and true to it, and help all of us to be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you already know, but the last couple of days, I've been on a little bit of a strange mini-holiday celebration. Uh, Two of my friends got married exactly one year ago, and they decided that they could think of nothing better to do for their first wedding anniversary than spend their time together, not with themselves, but with all their closest friends. And so they invited their bridal party, which I was on last year, down to the Gold Coast from all around Australia, and we just had a really fun time. It was, actually, it was really good. <laughs> but it wasn't very good for the bride's sister. A year ago, as they were all getting ready and excited to be able to come together for the marriage, she got COVID and she got stuck in Canberra and she wasn't able to come to be there at all for the wedding. Someone walked down the aisle holding a sign with her face on it (laughs) just to have her there in some sort of way. But she just wasn't able to be there. And so you can imagine how excited she was this time after months of planning for this to come together to kind of celebrate in replacement for what had happened. And so you can imagine how sad a lot of us were when on Thursday morning we woke up to a message from her saying, She's not going to be able to come because she's got COVID again. (laughs) You see, there's so many different things that can draw us together, draw us together to spend time, to enjoy each other's company, but there's just as many barriers that can stop us from doing that. And in these sort of situations, they feel really unfair. They're unwanted barriers. They're barriers that we hate. But... Other times, the things that stop us coming together as people are not barriers that we hate, but come from the hate that we have for others, from our desire to distance, from our own prejudice for people. Not all barriers are things that we wish would go away. This morning, we're looking at a passage that reminds us of all that God has done to remove every barrier between his people in the Lord Jesus. And we're doing that this morning as part of continuing to look at our values, which are on there, on the little banner, they're on our website, they're in our bulletin. And this morning, after Josh did the gospel-centered one last week, uh, we're looking at what it means for us to be a fellowship of believers. If you look on our website, you'll see the long-form version of this, Uh, which is still quite a bit shorter than this morning's sermon, Um, but let me read that out to you. Um, It says that we value the corporate fellowship of believers as a diverse group of people who are united in the saving work of Jesus. We accept and love every believer that God brings into our fellowship, no matter what cultural, socioeconomic, generational or other backgrounds. Every believer is valued as a part of the corporate fellowship of God's people here. Every believer serves for the common good of the fellowship and the glory of God. It's pretty good. As we unpack Ephesians this morning, 
I hope you're going to see that we're not just plucking this out of anywhere. Uh, We're getting it from God's word and the way that he describes the fellowship that we are drawn into as his people. And so as we get into this part of Ephesians chapter 2, let's just get ourselves into the context of the book. We studied it as a church a little while ago, but if it's been a while since you've read it, Ephesians really is a two-parter book. The first half, chapters 1 to 3, which we're in this morning, is really the big theology part. And it's focusing in on all the things that Christians have in the Lord Jesus. Then chapters 4 to 6, and Ken just read out part of chapter 4, they're really the application of what that means for God's people in light of all the things that they have in him. And so as we get to this morning, rather than thinking that this is some sort of theologically heavy and heady and intellectual exercise, I hope you'll see as we read through what Paul's writing that it's actually something deeply emotional. It's something that cuts to the core of the things we long for, the things we long for in belonging, of feeling isolated and separated from others. It's something that's so beautiful and stunning that in chapter 3, he can't help but break into this spontaneous sounding praise and prayer to God about how good this is as a reality for God's people. And so as we get into it, I hope you'll see a bit of how good this is, the kind of fellowship that is being talked about that we are all drawn into together today as a church as well. And as the chapter, this section begins, Paul's beginning with a reminder, just like at the start of the chapter, of where they were without Christ, how far they are from God without him. Verse 11 and 12 say, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The start of chapter 2 is really focusing on the relationship between the people and God and how that changed in Jesus. But in this second half of the chapter, from verse 11 onwards, it's really focusing in on where they were and where they are now with each other as God's people. Paul's writing this to predominantly Gentile audience. And remember, they're just all the ones outside the Jewish people. And honestly, that's most of us today, unless there's some hidden info, I don't know, for most of you. Um, He's reminding them, though, that without Jesus, they were in dire straits. They were mocked by the Jews as the uncircumcision, where circumcision is the physical mark and clearest outward sign of being a member of God's covenant people. Since they didn't have this, they were outside They were mocked. They were just pagans without God's blessing. And there's five rapid-fire ways in verse 12 that Paul unpacks this. First, they were separated from Christ. And I think what's in mind here is they were separated from the promise to Israel of the Christ, the Messiah, who would come to save the people. 
Second, they were alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel. That's the sense of identity, of citizenship that they were excluded from. There were provisions for Gentiles being able to come in um, to almost become Jews, but they could never actually become citizens of Israel. This is what they were excluded from. Number three, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Think back to the Old Testament of the promises to Abraham of a great name and land and people and blessing that would come to the people. And that's a picture that's built on more and more as Moses comes and then David, as these promises are expanded upon and built up on. They had none of these as Gentiles. They shared none of the hope of God's people. All his promises of rule and restoration that saturate the prophets towards the end of the Old Testament, there was none of that for them. None of their life knew that. And ultimately, number five, they were without gods. It's not that they didn't believe in gods. These guys believed in many gods before they knew Jesus. But none of them believed in the one and true God of Scripture, the one God who truly rules over the whole world. This is meant to be a picture in these two verses of being as far away as possible from God and his people. But there's so much more that we just don't quite get from being culturally removed from the people. It sounds bad enough, but the Jews, they hated Gentiles. They despised them. They saw them as people against them and against their gods. And Gentiles, they despised and hated Jews because they were the opposite. Because of the cleanliness laws that were given down to the people, Jews couldn't even associate with Gentiles properly without getting dirty and mucky and having to go through ritual to clean themselves to be acceptable again. Paul is reminding them and us today just how far people are from God and his people without Jesus. But that's not where the majority of the passage is. The majority of the passage is reminding of what change to bring them close to God and to each other. In verses 13 and 18, we see that all God's people are brought together in peace by the blood of Jesus. Verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Gentiles in this church and all Gentile believers, and that includes most of us here today, if we trust in Jesus, we who were once far off have been brought near. Not because we've tried harder, not because we've got really good diplomats that have brought us near to God or his people. It's because he came down himself. In Christ, we who are far are brought near. Now, the blood of Jesus, when we think about it in our kind of modern scientific terms, it feels like this archaic or barbaric kind of culty thing. But it's not some sort of incarnation or some sort of arcane ritual that we are looking at. It's simply the truth that for all believers today, Jesus died in their place 
taking on himself the wrath of God that they deserve for their sinful rebellion towards him, and that by faith they might have forgiveness and life in Christ. They were once without Christ. They were once far off. They had no hope. We had no hope. But because of the sacrificial death of Jesus, anyone with faith is brought in near to God and each other. It's a beautiful picture. As the rest of the verses in this section keep going, though, they just show us how much Jesus' sacrificial death affected these believers. And there's two key words that pop up again and again, so watch out for them as I read. One of them's one, and the other one is peace. Let me read. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." This is a picture of Gentile believers now having peace with God and his people because they've been weighed one in Jesus. They were once great enemies, as separate as could be, as against each other as the world leaders are today with rising tensions and wars around the world. That level of animosity, and yet in Christ, they have peace. In Christ, they're brought as near as could possibly be. And I think we're used to thinking of peace in a passive way. So imagine countries are at war and there's some sort of reluctant peace treaty that's reached. And even though legally the countries are okay with each other, in their hearts, they still hate each other. They're still grieving the losses that they've fought for. Uh, they're still not really dealt with all of their problems. But the sort of peace that Paul is talking about here isn't like that. It's a peace that's closer to looking like going from enemies to friends. It's going from being completely separate to together being with each other and God and enjoying him together. These two groups who were once as opposed as could possibly be, they once mocked each other and hated each other. In the blood of Jesus, they're given peace and friendship and closeness more than could be imagined. And it's only possible because of the union they have with Jesus that all believers share. All are united to him and so they are united to each other. That law that's kept the two groups separate, that law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that is dealt with on the cross. The things that separated them, these rules for cleanness, the ceremonial things they had to do, in light of the gospel, in the new covenant life of believers, 
that is no longer a requirement for them. So once, when they were separate, they couldn't ever think of dining together, of touching each other, but now they are brought as close as could be. But there's two other key things that I think I need to quickly mention about this sort of union. The first one that's a huge point of this section is that Jews and Gentiles are made one new humanity. A lot of the Bible talks about Gentiles being brought in, and particularly in the prophets in the Old Testament, there's this glorious picture of God not just saving his people, but saving their enemies and bringing them in to be amongst him. And there's other bits of the New Testament that talk in that frame of language too. But Paul here is trying to point out how special this new bond that they have is. It's not like they're just an afterthought, they're just being led in the door after they've been standing around awkwardly separate for ages. They're not second-class citizens. They are made one new humanity together. In the same way at the start of chapter 2 that there's this new creation language of going from death to life in Jesus. Now the two groups are made one new man together. They're not second class. There's no more barrier between them. Together, they and us are united into one new humanity in Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing is that this is talking about believing Jews and Gentiles. There's some that take this passage and others to try to suggest that the work of Jesus brings peace to all people, regardless of whether they have faith in Jesus. And that is really not clear from this passage. It's quite the reverse. In verse 17, this peace that's preached to those who are near and those that are far, I think that's saying that this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus that has to be preached to the Jews who thought they were near and the Gentiles who knew they were far. It's not something that is just fixed stuff for everyone. This is a peace that's achieved for those with faith in Jesus. It's a peace that needs to be heard and spoken to to all people, whether ethnically Jewish people or Gentiles, like many of us. It's only those who've received the grace of the gospel by faith that are united together in this way. So this is a peace that's made into this new special humanity, a peace that's only for believers. And we see how that's even clearer as we get to the last few verses of the chapter. Verses 19 to 20 show us more of the after picture of what this new relationship looks like. And rather than this big contrast of near and far, it's zoomed in even closer to what these believers together look like. And they're all being built together as building blocks into a new temple. From verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is finishing off the last few of the contrast that we haven't had yet from the start of the section. 
They're no longer strangers. They now are fellow citizens. They are now people who share in the covenant promises. They don't no longer belong. They, they belong. They're now together, one people with God. And the closeness is described in family language. It's a household that they're joined together with. And not just any household, it's God's household. And as it keeps going, it's very temple language. It's explicit once, and the whole rest of it is drenched with the idea of a temple. And how does this temple look? It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which seems to be saying it's built on the faithful teaching about Jesus all through Scripture. It's built with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And I'm a bit of an architecture novice, so you ask Josh if you need more on this. But I think this is talking about the idea and ancient practice of using this cornerstone as the basis of measurement and template and pattern through which all of the stones together in the building come from. If the cornerstone is right, all the things that are modelled after and copied after that, that expand out from there, they form a good and solid building. Jesus at the, sense, at the cornerstone of this building means that the building is good. And not just that, but that they are with God himself with complete access. This holy temple that they're grown into is a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so instead of this picture of two groups as separate as could be, and not just separate from each other, but separate from God, in Christ, they're brought together. They're brought into God's family. They're built as a people-shaped house that has complete access to God, no separation from him as they enjoy their time together. There's so much more we could say about the passage, but I reckon it's good for us to move on to thinking about how this actually affects the way we think about us as a fellowship of believers today. It might feel a bit irrelevant because... I can't remember in my time here a dispute between Jewish believers and Gentile believers and getting along. But I think this reality of what Christ has achieved for his people is actually some of the strongest teaching about what the body of believers and the church looks like in the New Testament. And there's two huge things that I think this tells us about how we should think about fellowship. And the first one of those is that our fellowship together as believers is centred around Jesus. There's so many ideas I hear around me of what fellowship is. It's a bit of a joke point on the internet. Uh, I've had lots of friends go, oh, why don't we have some Christian fellowship around a golf game or a video game or that really expensive dinner? But so much of what we talk about fellowshipping around is actually quite far from Jesus. If it, the thing that unites us together, the thing that made us two groups one, the thing that gives us peace with one another and with God in him is Jesus, then that is what the centre of our fellowship should look like. 
all the things that we're doing and saying should be patterned and shaped after him. When I go to a board game convention, there's lots of people that are nerdy like me, others that aren't, but the one thing I can be sure of is I can walk up to any table, and as long as it's not someone's partner that they've dragged along, they love board games like me. And that's what we do. We, I will go up and sit on someone's table, watch the game they're doing, and just enjoy chatting about the game that they're playing and whether they like it or not and which one they're dying to play for the rest of the day. It's just super natural for that. For us as Christians, when we gather in church, it ought to look the same for us in the way that we think about fellowship. We are really different. There are many of us that would never probably choose if we had a choice to spend time with some of us in our week. But the thing that unites us is Jesus and his gospel. And so that ought to be the thing that's our first impulse, our first point of call to go, this is how we share life with each other. I can reasonably expect to talk about the weather or that footy thrashing against the swans the other day with any random person at the bus stop. But in a community drawn together by Jesus and united in him, we share so much greater stuff than that. It's not that we don't talk about these other things that we enjoy. We care about these things, and so we talk about them with people we care about. But if that's all we do... If that all is all that comes from the bond we share because of the blood of Jesus, if that is all that Jesus has died for to bring us together as a church for, then I think we've got it completely wrong. Our conversations at church, our conversations when we get together in community groups during the week, when we catch up with one another for coffee, whenever we meet with other Christians, they are all bonded together in Jesus. It's his words and his thoughts that should be coming from us. We're part of the family now, and we delight in our great family story that we were far from God and each other, but he brought us near in Jesus. Part of our new vision this year as a church is to be a church on mission that's maturing disciples. And one of the things that can really hold us back from being a church on mission is if we're actually not having Jesus on our lips and our minds and our thoughts when we're meeting together, let alone when we're out in the community amongst people who are not believers. If it's not Jesus that's on our lips when we meet together at church, why is he going to be when we're at work, when no one else is encouraging us as believers? If it's not him on our lips when we're in community groups, when we're catching up over morning tea, then Why are we going to be motivated to talk with our family about him that are still enemies of God and his people? This isn't some sort of message of try harder, of work harder. This is something God helps us with by his spirit. He's at work in changing us to be more and more like, to be desiring more and more. But it is something that we work alongside with him. We're saved by and united in Jesus together. And that means when we think about what fellowship is, 
we ought to think about it being centred around Jesus, about his truth, his gospel, his word, and all the things that flow from that in life. That's the first big point, I think, that this passage tells us about what our fellowship of believers looks like. Second, our fellowship in Jesus transcends human barriers. That's the thing that I was talking about at the start and is really clear in the way that God is at work in here, bringing two groups that were enemies for not just decades, but millennia together, not in anything else but in Jesus. Paul's reminding us that this is a huge cultural barrier that's been removed. And the passage is not saying that he made it easily, easy emotionally for these two groups to now be hanging out together. But a lot of the New Testament is talking about the drama and the issues that were faced by these new Christians having to spend time together when they had centuries of time going, no, that's the enemy. That's someone I don't even want to be seen with, let alone embrace or share communion with. But it is saying that God in Jesus has removed every barrier between believers by drawing people as close as possible, by uniting them in him and in this intimate access to God together in him. He brings people from enemies to friends in Jesus, from hate to love, from separation to complete belonging to each other and to God. And just all too often, we're content with leaving the cultural barriers that we see around us be. We leave them to fester. We even build them up and support them so that they don't ever fall over. They can be really silly things like, oh, that person's on the left side of church and it's a big barrier for me to walk over to say hi. Or it's someone I don't know very well and I'm not sure if I can go out of my way to get to know them well. Or they're a bit older or a bit younger than me and I'm not sure how I could ever relate. Or they're from a really different culture or upbringing or background. Or we just like different things and I don't want to change what I like. Or I find their personality really difficult. But Jesus draws us together in a way that transcends all these sorts of barriers. This passage isn't saying that Jesus has removed the barrier of age and and interest and all that explicitly, but it is saying that by drawing us together as believers, none of these things should be ultimate barriers in us loving one another as we join together in our love for God. Jesus has brought us near in a way that transcends anything that we'd put up And so, again, it's not something that we need to just try and try harder at, but we need to still submit to getting to know one another, not just as someone who's a stranger, but someone who's been made a brother and a sister. It'd be strange if you're living in the same house for someone for 10 years and you never knew their name or you never knew what they liked or why they what their faith was, but it's really easy for us to do that in church because of all of these barriers that can be placed between us and them, whether they're placing them or more often we are. 
Don't let that be us as a church. Keep striving to do and continue in this new relationship that Christ has placed us in, remembering that he has given us this closeness to each other and him beyond we could, what we could imagine. There's nothing we can do humanly that could make us have a closer bond than the bond we have by the blood of Jesus. So don't muddy it. Don't be content with being strangers to the people that God has brought us to be brothers and sisters with. As we get to an end this morning, there's many of those that we know that don't enjoy this fellowship. This is a fellowship for believers, of believers, of people that have come to know and place trust in the Lord Jesus. And I know I have many dear friends that I see every week who don't enjoy this fellowship. I know many family members who might have thought that they knew it, but no longer do. But as we think about our story, the way that we have been brought as far as could be imagined, from as far as could be imagined, from God and his people, to this intimacy of new fellowship with each other in God's presence. We need to keep remembering as we keep going as a church that that's what our community needs, that's what our friends and family need. We know that as Christians, every barrier between us as fellow believers is ultimately nothing compared to what we are brought into. This is something that ought to be obvious when we invite people to our dinners at HSBC, when we catch up with people during the week with other Christians we know from church. They should be able to see the way that this is different, this is truly a new humanity that God has made in us. We need to remember this story and tell this story with the hope that we would have many more people joining together in God's household with us, made peace together in the blood of Jesus. I'm going to pray now for God's help as we keep thinking of fellowship in this way. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that all of us were once very far off from you and your promises and your people. We were strangers and aliens. We had no hope. And we had no God. But Lord, we thank you that in Christ Jesus, by his blood, you have drawn us near to each other and to you. You've made peace. You've broken the dividing wall that would separate these great groups of Jews and Gentiles and ultimately anything that separates believers because of what you've drawn them into by union with your son. Lord, we pray that you would help us as a church to keep thinking about the time we spend together in this way. Help us to have Jesus on our lips and on our minds and hearts. Help us to not let any cultural or small barriers that prevent us from knowing one another or prevent us from inviting others to share this same fellowship with each other continue to get in the way. Lord, help us all by your spirit 
Encourage us when we're weak in this and spur us on with the great hope that you've given us of forever life with you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.